This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Tomorrow is November the 11th, Remembrance Day, the day we honor all our veterans, past and present. This year marks the 95th anniversary of the armistice agreement that ended the First World War. Today we'll get a new take on the events and personalities that led the world into the Great War, a war that still reverberates today. Acclaimed historian Margaret Macmillan will be here with her new book, The War That Ended the Peace, The Road to 1914. Remembering the horrors of the Holocaust and making sure they are never repeated. That's the mission of Holocaust Education Week, which just wrapped up here in Toronto. We'll have a musical memorial and we'll talk to Rabbi Dove Marmer about the importance of educating future generations. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. You wonder how doctors missed this one for so long. Two Belgian orthopedic surgeons have discovered a ligament that may be responsible for many common knee injuries. They began searching for the part after reading an 1879 article by a French surgeon that theorized the existence of an additional ligament located on the front part of the knee. Their search uncovered a tiny band of connective tissue they've named the anterolateral ligament, or ALL. Older men who use testosterone supplements may face increased risks for heart attacks, strokes, and death. A new study looked at men in their 60s on average. The authors say the results are not conclusive, but do raise concerns about widely used and heavily marketed testosterone gels, patches, and injections. Men in the study who used the products were about 30% more likely than non-users to have one of those bad outcomes. Vern Maynard of Palm Desert, California, did what he always wanted to do when he reached his 100th birthday this Monday. He went skydiving. Maynard, two great nephews, and some instructors made the jump from 4,000 meters southeast of Los Angeles. Maynard's daughter Linda says her father's friends made arrangements for him to skydive after he said he always wanted to try it. The jump took place after Maynard got the okay from his doctor. And finally, a fishy write-in campaign by a tweeting 20-pound carp has failed in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The fish was on the hook for a city council seat. However, the bid was unsuccessful. The carp, no relation to our golden fish, was already a prominent member of the community, made famous after it was pulled from a pond last November because preservation workers deemed it was destroying local vegetation. It had been campaigning on Twitter 
for the better part of the year. And in the weeks leading up to the election, it was featured on lawn signs around the city. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to Rome. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. That became an iconic World War I standard after the Irish regiment, the Connaught Rangers, sang it as they marched through Boulogne in August 1914. This was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Instead, the political and social upheavals it brought led us to World War II. I'm here with eminent historian Margaret Macmillan. Her new book, The War That Ended the Peace, tells the story of how a century of peace in Europe came to an end, ushering in a war that changed the world. The last of the World War I veterans are gone. Uh, younger people are only dimly aware of that critical period in our history. Why should they know about the First World War? Well, whether or not they realize it, they're living in a world that was shaped by the First World War. Their ancestors may have fought in it. They may have come to this country because of the war. Their lives and the lives of millions were affected by the war. And I think in many ways, we're still living with the consequences of that war. In what ways are we still living with the consequences? Well, the war changed the position of Europe in the world. Before the war, Europe was the most powerful, most advanced, most progressive, most prosperous part of the world. And Europe's steady decline really began as a result of the First World War. And you got the rise of the United States to world power. You got the appearance of communism in Russia with huge consequences for the 20th century. And I think you got the shattering of old societies. And, and we're still, in a way, living with those consequences. When we study about the First World War, we're instructed about the causes of the war and told that really it was almost inevitable. I like to believe it wasn't inevitable. I mean, the trouble with the First World War is there were so many possible reasons for it because there were a lot of tensions. There was an arms race. There was a naval race between Britain and Germany. There was competition for markets, competition for colonies, nationalism. And so we tend to think the war was bound to happen just because there were so many reasons why it might have happened. And I don't like to believe that things are inevitable in human history because I think if we believe that, we give up and we don't try and avert catastrophe. You talk about it, it wasn't just the larger events, but also the people involved had a huge impact on the way things turned out. And it was interesting, you talk about the crisis at Fashoda, where war was averted because Queen Victoria sort of said that this would be a dumb thing to go to war over. Yeah, and that's, that's also one of those interesting things. I mean, everybody thought a war, if it was going to be a big war, would be much more likely between France and Britain. I mean, they've always hated each other, not always, but they've been en enemies for a long time. And they fought in Canada, they fought in India, they fought around the world. And the two countries, Britain and France, nearly came to war in 1898. And yes, you had people on both sides who said, this is crazy. Why are we fighting over a very small village in the South Sudan? On the other hand, uh, as another part of the what if, with uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, who came to power kind of unexpectedly, you sort of say, well, what happened if he hadn't, if his father had ruled instead of him for another two decades? I, mean, I think it's so interesting. The role of accident in history is so important. Um, you know, who gets run down by a bus and who doesn't? I mean, Winston Churchill was nearly killed by a car in, in, on Fifth Avenue in New York in the 1920s. And think of what the history of the Second World War had been, or if Hitler had been killed in the trenches in the First World War, as he very nearly was. And yes, I think, I think the accident of Wilhelm II coming to power was hugely important. 
When you look at the role of individuals, I mean, is that sort of the uh, great man theory of history? And is that sort of coming into vogue now a little bit more in historical circles? That's such an interesting question. I mean, everyone's been so rude about the great man theory of history and said this is nonsense that history is just made by great men or by great women. And of course, lots of other things make history. But I think it does sometimes matter who's in office at a particular time and who is there to shape the destiny of the country. I mean, I think it really made a difference, for example, that Hitler took power in Germany, or it made a real difference that Stalin took power in Russia. And so you can't separate these people from their times, but you can't say that they don't matter. I think in some cases, the individuals can matter a lot. Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated. You say he was the one man that could have prevented the war. He was in a position while he was alive to prevent war and had done so. He was the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, which was this huge collection of countries in the center of Europe. And every time there'd been a crisis before, Archduke Franz Ferdinand had, had been a voice of moderation and said, look, we can't afford to go to war. It'll be the end of the monarchy. And of course, in that, he was absolutely right. And so by removing him, the assassins, when they killed him in, on June 28, 1914, removed a man who might have prevented Austria-Hungary going to war. What about this business of the role of honor of uh, countries going to war because they thought they couldn't back out? I think this still matters in international relations. I mean, we don't talk about honor as much in the same way, but nations talk about it. I mean, Secretary of State Kerry the other day was talking about American credibility, American prestige. And I think that means much the same thing. If you are a power, you have to feel that other people are going to believe that you have the power. Other people respect you. Otherwise, what makes you powerful begins to be chipped away at, begins to be attenuated. Fast forward again uh, to the assassination. Uh, you draw a parallel between the hot-headed nationalist terrorists who assassinated the Archduke and al-Qaeda. Well, there's something similar, I think, in them. I mean, these people are fanatics. And they believe in causing absolute mayhem. They believe in destroying those they see as, as, as oppressing them. And they don't really stop to think of the consequences. And they were also international. I mean, just as al-Qaeda or other types of terrorists today have international links, so they did in the early 20th century. And they copied each other. They borrowed weapons from each other. They followed each other's model. And so I think there is an interesting parallel there. And what, what should we learn from the earlier example? Well, what you learned from the early example, and I, and I think we should be doing it now, is, is that what you need is really good police work and you need good international cooperation because it's difficult often to catch these people, particularly, of course, if they have the support of powerful forces in the background. And the Serbian terrorists who killed the Archduke in Sarajevo were being backed by at least some elements in the Serbian government. And I think it, you know, if the Serbian government could have been persuaded to stop doing this, it would have been a very good thing. But it needed international cooperation. As a takeaway lesson from the book, is it that there's always a choice, nothing is inevitable? I think that's the lesson I would like to have people take away because I think it is so dangerous to throw up our hands and say nothing we can do, it's bound to happen. And I think there are almost always choices. You can always say no, we're not going to go to war. Okay, Margaret McMillan, thank you so much. Thanks, Libby. Margaret's book, The War That Ended the Peace, The Road to 1914, is published by Alan Lane. I'm Libby Zimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. That's the Gare Mandolin Orchestra. They are one of several groups trying to revive music that was lost during the Holocaust. In just a moment, we'll hear from them, as well as Toronto's Rabbi Dove Marmer, in honor of Holocaust Education Week. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing. 
making people's lives better. That's the Gare Mandolin Orchestra playing at the Toronto Centre for the Arts. The group started with a tattered photograph of Nair Yanai's family salvaged while escaping the Holocaust. It showed his grandfather and two other relatives playing in a pre-World War II Jewish mandolin orchestra in the Polish town of Gora Kalvaria, Gare in Yiddish. He founded the orchestra as a tribute to his family and the other orchestra members who perished in the Holocaust. The Thursday concert was part of Holocaust Education Week and is part of a growing movement to recover and revive Jewish music from that dark period. In the context of Holocaust Education Week, uh, the concert gives us an opportunity to remember how Jews lived, not how they died. Um, this is an amazing musical format that used to be really, really popular in Jewish life and not many people know about it. It's something that has uh, been off the radar for a number of decades and this concert gives us an opportunity to bring it to light and uh, create a joyous occasion where people celebrate music and remember the, the cultural riches of Eastern Europe before the Shoah. For more on the importance of Holocaust Education Week, I reached Rabbi Dove Marmer, Rabbi Emeritus at Holy Blossom Temple. He is a Polish Jew who spent the World War II years in the Soviet Union. One of the things we've seen uh, recently a lot of is the use of music to teach and to remember about the Holocaust. What is your view on that? I don't know about music enough. I'm always a bit worried that it's a bit romanticized nostalgia. I'm a bit worried that it may be a bit too cute, that hard facts may be necessary. And music uh, is very nice and occasionally significant. But... uh, I myself go in for the word rather than the tune. Where would you say we're at with Holocaust education? Much more to be done on the right track? There is always much more to be done. I don't think it can ever be done when you can discover in some rundown apartment uh, 1,500 uh, modern paintings looted. It suggests that there is still much more uh, to be done. And uh, uh, the historians are hard at work and they produce interesting material. Uh, For example, in Poland, where the Poles have uh, hitherto, by and large, assumed that it was the German who imposed the Holocaust on them. And now there are serious Polish historians who uh, write persuasively about the complicity of Poles. And one of the great difficulties, and I've been very much involved with this because I helped to found the Polish-Jewish Heritage Foundation of Canada, was that Jews had uh, one impression and experience of uh, Poles during the Holocaust, and the Poles had another. Uh, The Poles regarded themselves as victims uh, more than the Jews, and when the two groups tried to compare victimhood, uh, it didn't uh, result in, in, in much understanding. And you think that understanding is happening now? Uh, more. It's, there's more of it. There's more of it. What about a place like the Ukraine? Uh, well, even more so. Uh, Ukraine uh, had even greater difficulties in accepting Ukrainians in accepting their own role. And I 
I don't think there's that much written about it yet. But nowadays, uh, um, there is a, a measure of recognition. This last summer, I was in Germany for the first time, and I was in all the Holocaust Memorial Museums, and I was really quite overwhelmed that even in the height of summer, uh, these places were full of German schoolchildren, yes. and they were all being taught lessons, and there was a really large amount of staff in, in the museum uh, very knowledgeable staff, telling people and teaching people, and I was really quite pulled over by it. You see, whereas uh, Poles who were invaded by the Germans or Ukrainians who were invaded by the Germans could say it wasn't us. Germans really can't do that. And therefore, the authorities, the government, the educators uh, have uh, been conscious of this, and they are trying to educate uh, the next generation uh, to make sure it doesn't happen again. Germany is quite remarkable in many ways. One of the challenges with educating people about the Holocaust is that survivors are dying off. Indeed. But uh, Holocaust Education Week isn't only about their testimony. It's, of course, that too. It's also uh, an opportunity to look at what's happening around us now. I have always seen it as a, a way of educating people against other holocausts to identify the traits and trends that may lead to something similar, perhaps not against Jews this time, uh, but against others. I'm particularly concerned with the Roma, uh, but there are many other examples. Rabbi Marber, thank you so much for joining us. You're most welcome. I'm Libby Zimmer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. In just a moment, we'll return with more music from the Second World War, a very popular song performed by Vera Lynn. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to our Remembrance Day edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man. Music played a very important role in the Second World War. It was the first major war where soldiers could listen to the radio from their bases, camps, and hideouts. Many spent long, cold nights with the company of the voices of the Andrews sisters, Bing Crosby, Peggy Lee, Edith Piaf, Billie Holiday, and Louis Armstrong. Music had become a key tool for keeping up morale. In the UK, the BBC, which previously shunned popular music, turned to big band and swing to lift soldier spirits. But nobody was as popular as singer Vera Lynn. She sang one of the most iconic songs of the Second World War, The White Cliffs of Dover. It was written when British and German aircraft were flying over those cliffs in the Battle of Britain. The song's lyrics look towards a time when the war might be over and Europe could return to peace. Today, as we listen to the song, we remember those who found comfort and courage in it over 65 years ago. We thank and honor them all. Tomorrow, just 
That was Vera Lynn singing The White Cliffs of Dover. And that brings us to the end of our Remembrance Day edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thank you for joining me today. Please come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Bendry. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.